0: In three, two, one. When do we take control of our lives and our destiny?
2: We're a small country, but we punch way
0: above our weight. Like, I'm filming now what this is, to be
3: honest with you. I thought it was one of the hardest things to do. It was
0: horrendous. We're the one for cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call
4: 1850-715-996.
0: Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is the opinion line with PJ Coogan on Cork's
5: 96FM. Good morning, Fiona and in for PJ Coogan on this Wednesday morning. I keep getting confused with the bank holiday Monday. I'm not sure what day it is, but today's Wednesday and it is absolutely rotten outside. There is a status yellow rainfall warning for Cork today. Um, so if you are out on the roads, remember to keep your lights on and to slow down and be careful. There's a lot of surface water and a lot of spot flooding around the place. And if you're not out on the roads, then stay at home. Put the feet up, watch TV, the house do whatever Use today to uh, do whatever kind of household chores you need to do. And if you are at home with the kids uh, this morning and tearing your hair out at the prospect of having to spend all day inside, stay tuned because I will be speaking later on in the show to the fabulous Cork artist, Will Sliney, who has a new show out at the minute and it teaches kids all about how to draw. Uh, So we're looking forward to chatting to him later on in the show. I'll also be speaking to a Cork native who's hoping to break a record by being the first Irish person to win a medal in the Winter Olympics. And um, I'll be chatting to him later on in the show as well. But first, um, I'm joined now by Professor Samuel McConkie, who's going to speak to me about the the COVID surge that we're experiencing at the minute and why we're going through that. Good morning, Professor McConkie.
6: Thank you. Thank you for inviting
5: me. Yeah, and thank you for joining us. Now, um, we are hearing all the time now about a rise in in COVID numbers here in Ireland and in in Cork as well. Um, Why is that? I mean, like, you know, we thought that once we were all vaccinated that that would be the silver bullet. And we have one of the highest vaccination rates here in in Europe. But we still seem to have these rising case numbers. Can you explain why that is?
6: Yeah, so in Ireland, um, for the whole population, uh, about 76% of the 5 million of us who live here have had the vaccine. And that's obviously a lot of people under 12 uh, have not been, the vaccine's not licensed in under 12. So mm. uh, younger children under 12 obviously haven't been vaccinated. So there, there have been a lot of infections over the last four or five weeks in, in younger children. Uh, In you know they're out living their lives and and doing things, and then that has spread now into middle-aged people and older people, and uh, it's so it's a combination of uh, our vaccine rates. The 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 poster child at present, the the ones I would point to, countries of a source of hope is Portugal and Spain. There, Portugal is much higher vaccination rates than us, and Spain also is higher than us, and they've also kept a combination of some sensible social distancing. Mm. So they're asking people to. Uh, stay spaced out in restaurants and bars and pubs, and I think, unfortunately, they're following the advice of the government just better than ours. Now, now, Portugal and Spain were both hit very, very badly, worse than us back last year. So, the people have been through the mill, if you like, and had very, very high death rates, much higher than ours last year. But now they're 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 really complying. Uh, with the ongoing social distancing. So unfortunately, I think we've been a little bit listening maybe to the British word sort of mm. open everything up back to 2019. That's the wrong message. This is not a time we can just go back to 2019, 2018 levels of socialising. We've still got ongoing need for masks wearing in public places, for some uh, distancing from restaurant tables, one from another, distancing at concerts, distancing at, at theatres, at cinemas. So it, we're, the the coronavirus is still here, and unfortunately, that message has, has kind of got a bit lost, especially going into winter. Very weird because it's going to be cold, it's going to be mm-hmm. wet. We're going to try and congregate indoors, and crowding indoors, as we all know at this stage, is very good for transmission of COVID nineteen.
5: So do you think it's the wrong approach that we've adopted here? And you know, we have lifted many of the restrictions, um, and we saw, you know, over the weekend, a lot of nightclubs and venues packed out with people, and you know, obviously they were out dancing and they weren't social distancing. Because that's what we were told we were allowed to do. Is that the wrong approach? Do you think?
6: Yeah, I wouldn't. I supported the opening of nightclubs in a in a in a cautious and regulated way, and I understand there's a working group with the nightclub owners and, and the government to try and find ways of, you know, enjoying ourselves in at night that that is that is COVID safe. We we haven't quite reached that as a population. The the, the combination of uh, distancing and and vaccination that's needed. I I, I know there's maybe 80 percent of restaurants and nightclubs and bars are checking a COVID cert, but my mm. view is every single place should be. And if it's not checking your COVID cert for an indoor venue, we, we shouldn't be going in because lots of people are probably infected with COVID there. And then once they're singing and dancing and shouting in close proximity, you know, it, it, it will spread. So we have to reach this combination of high levels of vaccination and some ongoing uh control of social interactions or, or moderation of social interactions that allows us to reach a, a balance so covid is not spreading because you're quite right the la- since the 6th of october the numbers have been going up here numbers in icu numbers in hospitals and, and sadly numbers of deaths so so our balance is not right uh, at present and, and we're going to have to re- reset that i hope that with compliance and, and with uh, really strict adherence and people realizing we, we actually have to continue to practice covid safe measures like if we're sick you know don't be going to work don't be going to socialize stay at home voluntary self-restrict even if your lateral flow test is negative you still shouldn't go out with the snuttery nose and so on because you're spreading your viruses around if you like so it's, mm. it's better for sick people to stay at home so i think i think we haven't quite Uh, got there yet but I'm I'm, I'm reasonably optimistically hopeful in the next sort of couple of months that we will get there and I'm hoping some of the folk who are a bit late on the vaccine are now we're seeing a a rise in people coming in for vaccines in the last few weeks as well so I'm hoping we can get our vaccination rates up to that 82% 85% where Spain and Portugal achieved.
5: And how important are booster vaccinations so now?
6: so they're definitely important and necessary and uh, we know that the vaccine antibody levels weigh in and the power of it wins with time it's more a question of exactly when are they needed is it after 3 months or 6 months or, or or 12 months and unfortunately that answer varies from person to person for some people who are older and maybe don't have a good immune system they need earlier boosters and for other people who are younger with a stronger immune system uh, that they, they 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 possibly don't don't need it for for a year or so so there is a technical working group of called NIAC, national immunization advisory committee looking at the international data and irish data and hopefully giving the government advice on that but almost definitely we we will all need boosters uh, with other coronavirus is like the common cold virus which is also a coronavirus after a year or two your immunity wanes and we all get the common cold again and again and again and I don't think SARS-CoV-2 is going to be any different immunity whether it's acquired from natural infection or from vaccination will will definitely wane and we will benefit and need a, a booster dose
5: um, Dr. Anne Moore, she's a vaccine specialist based here at UCC. She's calling this morning for a transmission blocking vaccine. Um, would, you, would you support that call?
6: Yes. So what, what we're finding now is that the vaccines that we all have been getting are very, very good against preventing severe disease and death, mm. which of course is, is great because we don't want severe disease and death, but they're less good at preventing infection and transmission so that the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines that most of us have got are less good at preventing transmission and that uh, transmission and infection of course means that we're still a risk to others and you know many of us live with and and enjoy the company of our, our loved ones who are often elderly and have multiple medical problems and we want to be with them we, you know we want to hug them mm. we want to be in their house and the vaccine especially at the early stage did protect us and you know we were allowed to go in and hug our loved ones if we we're all vaccinated but unfortunately that that uh protection uh, is lost three to six months and, and, and they don't prevent transmission near as well as preventing severe disease so I, I agree with Anne. Anne I you know actually used to work in the same research group in Oxford so I I, I know her but I, I think I completely agree uh, it, it's, it's, it's not easy but that, that would be great to have a transmission blocking vaccine as another point of hope we're seeing small molecules now like sort of equivalent of aspirin or penicillin that are just been announced that the companies have developed. Uh, Pfizer have one and Merck have one that they've just done a press release of and they're sending the data to the FDA to get licensed, which inhibit the replication of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in our bodies. And this is like the drugs that have controlled HIV or controlled and cured hepatitis C. These are now coming on stream, small little chemical molecules that you could take if you were exposed to someone with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and that would prevent you replicating and prevent you getting sick with it. So that's a third really strong pillar and a sign of hope that I hope those will come in the next three to six months widely on the market as both a preventive tool and also a, a, a way of treating people who've got mild COVID to prevent them getting very sick.
5: Professor Sam McConkie, you spoke there about the situation in Portugal and Spain. And I think here in Ireland, we look to uh, our neighbours in the UK and we see that life has returned more or less to normal over there, but they do still have high case numbers. But they're expecting that those case numbers will drop significantly by December. Do you think that that will actually happen over there?
6: Um, no, my, my view is that the UK hasn't had a great experience over the last year and a half in their management of COVID-19. Mm. I think it's a particularly bad example. Not only that, the Houses of Parliament commissioned a, a cross-party review a few weeks ago and announced it. And they told themselves that they've done a really bad job on managing COVID. So so I, I really would encourage people not to look to England's uh, responses to COVID as as the way out of this uh they, they've, they've had a horrendous time for, for many, many reasons, which I don't really want to get into. Mm. But I think it's better off looking for signs of hope. And what's happening in Spain and Portugal has been much, much more effective. Uh, they have some ongoing um, restrictions in terms of the number of people in restaurants, the number of people in bars, the number of people going out into venues like uh, concerts and live music. And, and that th- that's a model that seems to be working for them. And if we were to replicate and copy the ongoing social restrictions in Spain that would work here. They have a huge tourist industry so they're open for tourists. We can go mm. to Spain as you know and we can hang out there and eat, but you can't eat in a crowded venue. It's table service, sitting down, and if you have symptoms you have to stay at home. So they've found a, a a you know a, a collection of socially acceptable tourist friendly uh, physical distancing measures that are working for them with these very very high rates of vaccination it's it's controlling covid well in spain so i i personally think our public policymakers should be looking to spain and portugal for the models for advice the other parts of europe just if we look around europe generally there's there's a terrible epidemic of covid going on in romania bulgaria latvia lithuania and estonia in the last three or four weeks mm. they've seen a massive surge in, in deaths about um 20 deaths per million people per day would be equivalent you know to 100 deaths a day in ireland you know thankfully we're we're not anywhere near there so so they're they're having a huge surge and of course as you know we bought a lot of vaccines from romania a few months ago because the romanians didn't want them and and they sold them to us and so the very low vaccination rates in bulgaria they're having a terrible surge and i think there's a lot of kind of skepticism does this really exist is this a big deal maybe distrust of healthcare and governments from a legacy from the authoritarian era of Ceausescu and and the soviet era the reason there's Maybe speculation, but they're definitely having a huge COVID surge. And there are many Romanians and and Latvians working and living in Ireland whose parents and family and siblings Mm. are going through this. And they're asking for our help. They're saying we need oxygen. We would like doctors. We need ventilators. We're really, really struggling. Our health services in crisis, you know, as it was in northern Italy uh, last year, as it was in New York last year and as it was in India this year earlier. So our our neighbours and friends in, in Eastern Europe are really having a torrid time.
5: See, I think people here get really frustrated and they say, you know, they're giving out a better government and, you know, like nearly two years into the pandemic, we're still seeing the numbers on the rise. And But I think just speaking to you this morning, I'm getting a sense of hope that we, we will see an end to this if we just play our cards right now.
6: Well, an end might be too definitive. I, I, I think we'll see a, a control and it will become something that's It's called endemic. I know, sorry, it's a complex technical word. Mm. It means that the disease is present, a bit like the common cold is here all the time. Unfortunately, this, while it's similar to the common cold in its transmission, it has a higher mortality. It makes people very sick, especially if they're elderly or have a lot of weight on them or have no immune system or dialysis or, you know, cancer patients on chemotherapy or or transplant patients. So this is like sort of a more severe deadly version of the common cold but we are we are going to have to find a balance and ways of living with it and i i think we're i'm looking around abroad for how that's been achieved and i would point with hope to spain and portugal uh, they're having a, a good life they're going out and eating and drinking and having fun in a social life together and welcoming mm. tourists which is a big part of their industry and and yet they're they're not they're seeing a, a gradual slow decline day by day in the number of covid cases and the number of covid deaths so spain and portugal have really pointed a good way forward for us. But when you say end, I fear then that your listeners will say, well, that means go back to 2018, 2019 ways mm-hmm. of living. And I I just don't think that that is possible with our current versions of technology. If Anne, Murr and others Good vaccine scientists can come up with a transmission blocking vaccine that would be a complete game changer but it, we don't we don't have one in our hand right now We've got vaccines that prevent disease and death in 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 many people uh, uh you know for maybe six months or a year but we we don't have a uh even though the vaccines are good they're, they're not they're not seeing an end so i, I don't like the word end if you know yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, but i i think Certainly, in a controlled improvement and a balance, if you like, that we can actually have a have a good, happy life. That you know, we can live out the goals and aims that we would like as individuals mm. and as a community to do. I, I think that is possible. That that will come. Uh, I I'm certainly feel that our 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 leaders and or the opposition have never had to lead through anything like this before. This is a completely new experience for all of us as a nation, for all of us in the world and and for a political leader. So it's it's certainly uh, not an easy job to lead through uh, this this type of crisis And I think we have to be gracious and recognize the challenges. You know, if I was Minister of Health, I would really, really struggle this. It's a very, very complex problem. And there's just so much work, you know, and, and mm-hmm. so tiring. And every week or two the virus comes up with a new twist. There's there's something new coming out of it so it's it's not a predictable journey it's it's a it's a it's a complex journey with lots of surprises on it so being a leader in those times is really, really challenging. So I I, I think we, we have to give our leaders credit for being out there and stepping forward and willing to t- take these very, very challenging roles at this time. So I, I respect and, and honor the leadership that we have got in this country at this time from both the opposition and and from the government party. So I'm I'm certainly uh, feel that centralized leadership is is so important to get us out of this that I, I think we have to respect and recognize how challenging it is and ask, you know, if 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 any of us was Stephen Donnelly, you know, we would struggle with that job. Yeah.
5: Professor Sam McConkey, Professor Health and Tropical Medicine at RCSI. Thank you so much for joining me on the Opinion Line this morning.
0: Can we just- Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. Oh eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six 96 96 On Courts 96 FM. Just wanted to say congratulations
5: to the Republic of Ireland women's team last night who beat Finland 2-1, uh, so congratulations to them. Also, the Premier League Live is back this Saturday on 96 FM.ie with Trevor Welsh, powered by TalkSport. We'll bring you live coverage of Leicester City v Arsenal at 12.30, Liverpool v Brighton at 3, and Spurs take on Manchester City at 5.30 PM. The Premier League live online with now. Stream live Premier League action with a now sports or sports extra membership. Listen Saturdays on the Cork's 96FM app or go to 96 fmie now, I was so shocked this morning when I read this in uh, The Times UK. It's uh, The NSPCC is warning that parents who are abrupt with their children and choose low-key celebrations for the likes of birthdays may be guilty of mild neglect. Parenting journalist Jen Hogan, what's your attitude to this or what's your reaction to what was said in this article this morning?
4: Yeah, good morning, Fiona. Um, yeah, I think a bit like yourself, I was a little bit... T- when you hear, you know, the idea of being abrupt with your child or maybe not celebrating um, an occasion in, in a high key manner, mm. I think all of us kind of relate to that and think oh my god have, have I been neglectful as <laughs> well every day I <laughs> yeah, there, is, there is that whole fear go, uh, going I am I am a bad parent you know you're mm. having one of those days I'm a bad parent I haven't done those things and then looking at the article and reading further into it there's reference to a house that's generally clean but might be in a, a state or might need uh, Pair and then I'm yeah. thinking no one is ever getting inside my door ever <laughs> ever again because uh, the judgment that would happen and I would just feel I had to go around with the with um some sort of sign on me saying honestly I'm just it's not that I'm respectful I'm just overwhelmed sometimes <laughs> and uh, it's just it's just too much to do um but I think I suppose it's taking a step back I suppose that's what we're probably all a little bit. In danger of, you know, personalising it and thinking Mm. of of things in terms of our own situation and our own family. And I can only presume that this is part of, this has to be taken very much in context and this is part of maybe considerations for social workers who are looking at um, a family where there is um, suspicion that a child is being Mm. neglected and that it's not not based on these things alone but perhaps they're looking for parental reaction and perhaps they're looking to see how involved the parent is in the child's life and how they react to situations. I suppose this, in the same way that when we talk about violence or neglect or um, behaviors against uh, women. Um, there's this, the emotional side of things to consider too. Not every child that's neglected is going to go around with visible signs of neglect and perhaps mm-hmm. there's that or perhaps there are other worries and there's, there's maybe somebody sitting back and having a look and, and examining the situation and seeing is this parent responding to a child in a typical way in the way that most parents might do and make a fuss around birthdays. I suppose it's the measure of things. I'm, I noted that somebody said there were very. It was a very middle class kind of assessment, and perhaps it didn't take account of um, a parent's financial situation. But I don't even think financial situation has to be the only consideration there. The parents. Um, personality, the par- mm. what, what matters in different families, and perhaps um how busy pa- parents are, perhaps. I suppose th- there are different ideals and different standards in every different household. That's what makes life so wonderful, that we're all yeah. so different, it'd be very boring if we were all the same. But I suppose, again, it's going back to context and looking at a, a situation in context and looking at a child's, how a child is treated in the context of perhaps a wider report, perhaps. Some th- I, that's all I can presume, because otherwise it makes no sense to me. It makes yeah. no sense at all, I would say to most of us.
5: Because I think when you read the headline, it says parents who are abrupt could be neglectful. But then as you read through the article, it is uh, guidance mm. for child protection social workers who are going out to mm-hmm. um, homes where they suspect there may be some child to neglect and they have this grading system. Um, so I don't think it is, um, you know, guided towards every parent but i think when you read no. that like parents are under so much pressure as it is and we feel guilty yeah. about everything do you know and if we have to if you think now like oh i have to throw these big elaborate parties now for my child's birthday every year um you know that's just more pressure being put on parents i think
4: Absolutely. And that's why some of me wonders if the article is kind of unhelpful because most of us are going to read it out of context. We Mm. are going to read it and apply it to us. And we already do have that huge guilt. And I don't know about you, Fiona, but the the pandemic made things so much worse for me in terms of maternal guilt. I've always, always struggled with mum guilt. It Mm. it literally, and I know, we all know it's kind of useless and it's a futile emotion. And, you know, that it is, it's just parents and particularly mothers being hard themselves but I know over the course of the pandemic when birthday parties couldn't happen when occasions couldn't be celebrated as we might like when events and milestones were cancelled there was that guilt you know as if as if it was something to do with me as if it was I had failed in some way when really it was circumstance and that's just the way the way things are but obviously this is very much focused on situations where there's perhaps a suspicion that a child is being neglected, and, and they're watching. They're watching the family situation to see: are is the child's emotional needs and social development needs are they being responded to? Mm. The elaborate birthday party one. I suppose that that throw that's going to throw most of us because you're immediately going to think, well, what if that's not your thing? And is that what yeah. it is? Is it, um kind of these big dramatic displays of um adoration and adulation and um. To show making a fuss of children, is that how we measure neglect now? Is that how we measure how much? A child, that that obviously is concerning when you read that, I suppose. But again, I, I can only presume it's very much out of context, and yeah. that they're talking their idea of um making a fuss of the child or or celebrating it in an appropriate way is relative to the family circumstances and relative to the the overall situation. Because for the rest of us, it's just going to make everybody feel bad. And being abrupt, that is something I think that most of us are are like with our children. Especially during midterm break drink. when we're at home yes, and it's raining certainly.
5: outside. <laughs>
4: <laughs> when it's raining outside and you're on a deadline and they just keep calling for food all the time. And you're going, how can you still be so hungry? Yeah, so they're absolutely, yeah. Or they're killing each other in the sitting room or whatever else is going on. Or I'm yeah. like here, you're on the phone and you're going, please don't come up the stairs. Don't come up the stairs and tell me he's done something on you. <laughs> I may be abrupt broke
7: on air. <laughs> there is
4: that genuine fear that something like that. But I think, again, that's within the context of of I suppose loving families and pressurised families and it's very it's very very different but I, I would worry that the article is unhelpful for that reason. I do think that it maybe undermines their work. We, mm. we might not understand it but again we're getting a snippet into what those guidelines are and I suppose we're personalising and we're applying them and we're all feeling a little bit worse about ourselves as parents today. Before
5: I let you go Jen somebody has just been in touch with us here via WhatsApp to say I don't want to use the word <laughs> snowflake but are we creating a generation that feels special in a world that will not long be reminding them that they are just a number.
4: Uh, no, I do you know what I think. There's enough people who'll knock your kids down as they get older and as they turn as they become adults. And we all know that's the way of the world. There's plenty of people out there willing to tell us what we're doing wrong and you know, willing to knock us down. So I don't think there's any harm in parents building their kids up. That, that's not, I don't mean giving them unrealistic expectations mm. or telling them they're more wonderful at something than they are, but celebrating them, celebrating who they are, and celebrating what they've achieved, and celebrating what they do, and celebrating what's unique about them. And making a fuss of them. I don't see that as a big deal because life is tough. So I don't think that creates snowflakes. I don't think that creates um kids who can't cope. Maybe that just gives kids a little bit more confidence and resilience and security to know that somebody adores them and somebody values them at home. And that's yes. not that's a good thing in my eyes.
5: Parenting journalist Jen Hogan, thank you so much for joining me on the opinion line this morning. What do you think? Are we creating a generation of of children who won't be able to cope when they become adults, or are ch- parents just under way too much pressure these days with all of these kind of articles that are coming out? Let us know eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six or 0833 96, 96, 96. Keep your comments coming in to us on in 96, 96, 96. John O'Donovan has been in touch um, following my conversation with Professor Sam McConkey this morning, and he says I think there should be a media blackout on COVID nineteen after listening to Sam McConkey this morning. I'm worried about people's mental health if vaccines aren't working there's no sign of anything stopping this virus we need to get on with it. Is it the case now that the unvaccinated are being blamed and are we the unvaxxed going to be forever locked out from socialising? Do you agree with John? Do you think there should be a media blackout on COVID-19? 1850 715 996 96 96 96. Now Ireland might not be known for its winter sports but one Cork native who is now living in Utah in the United States is hoping to to make history in the Winter Olympics in Beijing and I've been speaking to Brendan Bubba Newby. Brendan Bubba Newby uh, you are currently preparing to go to Beijing for the Winter Olympics and you're hoping to be the first Irish person uh, to win a Winter Olympic medal for Ireland. Just tell me a little bit about the event that you're competing in.
7: So I compete in half pipe skiing. It's uh, under the freestyle skiing category and it's got Uh, so you imagine a vert ramp on a skateboard except it's made out of snow and it's uh it's 22 feet walls on either side and you're judged on the tricks and flips and spins you do and uh if you grab your skis and style is a big aspect of it you want to make it look good not just spin as fast as you can
5: and you did compete in the 2018 winter olympics what was that like
7: um i'd say absolutely mind-blowing life-changing it sounds cliche but a dream come true growing up in utah is pretty wild because we have we had the 2002 olympics and so that legacy is everywhere and the facilities are still all in use and so you can see world-class athletes train and do what they're best at i've always said that you can uh close your eyes and throw a snowball with your left hand and hit an Olympian here. They're just everywhere.
5: <laughs> and uh, I suppose they're not so much here, the Winter Olympians are not so much uh, here in Ireland. Uh, how would you, uh, what would you say to encourage more Irish people to get involved in winter sports? I mean, obviously we don't have the facilities that you guys have in Utah, and we don't have the weather either.
7: Well, I'm the first Irish freestyle Olympian, but I really, really don't want to be the last. I would say just if you have a passion for it, make find a way to get on snow and ski or snowboard if that's what you're into. Just the more time you can spend doing it, the better you'll get. And then surround yourself with good people that want to, you know, have the similar passion, and uh, good things will happen.
5: And you are you were born in Cork, but you moved to Utah when you were two. And I can hear in you that you absolutely love the state over there. So if anybody was to go over to Utah, it's not just all about uh, Olympians and snow, is it?
7: <laughs> no, it's actually. So we've got five national parks here, and um, I spent a lot of time in them, especially Arches and Zion National Park. I spent a lot of time down there, and it's just like mind blowing stuff. It feels like you're on the set of the Martian movie with Matt Damon. Like just in real life, though, so the rocks are crazy, the formations are insane, and there's just like it's tough to find something that's not drop dead gorgeous here.
5: So, would you think like that maybe, it would be a good tourist place for uh, Irish people to go and visit? Somewhere that's uh, you know a bit, little bit different for us here.
7: Oh yeah, I'd definitely recommend it. Whether you're coming for skiing or for uh, national parks or just to hike and see the scenery like there's not really anywhere like it that i've found and i've traveled all over like you can uh especially if you come here in the springtime you can go have a sick day on the hill skiing and then within a few hours you can be surrounded by desert and red rocks and arches and it's just such a contrast and it's really cool to be able to do both of those in the same spot
5: so you're, you're obviously, you're still there at the minute, but you are hoping to go to Beijing later this year to compete in the Olympics. So how are the preparations coming along?
7: They're going pretty good. I uh, have to get a bit better and not much time, but I feel like I'm making the right steps. I'll be heading to Austria in a two-week time to get some time and a half pipe right before the first World Cup qualifier of the season. And so things are going good. I'm just trying to take things you know, one step at a time, if I look four months or three months in advance towards the Olympics, then I'm not focusing on what I'm doing right now. So I'm just thinking, all right, tomorrow I go to the gym and do this. And then that's all I focus on is tomorrow.
5: Do you think that if you are successful over there and you do win a medal, that that would inspire other Irish people to take up winter sports?
7: You know, medal or not, my goal is to inspire other Irish people to take up winter sports because how much it has changed my life is I just want other people to be able to experience the same thing and find themselves in the mountains and um, I'll get a participation medal either way.
5: (laughs) And do you come back to Cork at all ever?
7: So I honestly, I haven't been back yet. And yeah. I really want to. So, if anybody has any recommendations of where I can see and go, I'd really like to. My dad was teaching at University College Cork. That's what we were doing there at the time. And then I moved back before I could remember anything. So, yeah. I've really been itching to get back.
5: <laughs> well, hopefully, you do make it across this way very soon. And there's loads of lovely things to do in Cork. And I'm sure that I can speak on behalf of everybody here when I want to wish you well in the Olympics later on this year.
7: Sweet. I really appreciate it. And it's awesome to have the hometown support. And I hope to be there soon.
8: Can we just talk?
7: The opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us
0: now.
4: 1850 715
0: 996. On courts 96 FM. Now we know that late
5: pubs and nightclubs were allowed to reopen at the weekend, but there has been a bit of a backlash because um the government are now saying that they're going to need uh that we are going to need to buy tickets an hour before we go in. Joining me now is Matt McGranahan of the Music and Entertainment Association of Ireland. Good morning, Matt.
8: Good morning. Thank you very much for having me on.
5: Matt, you've described this system of build or of buying tickets an hour beforehand as unworkable. Why is that?
8: Well, it's um, it's a solution that's been given for really one sector of the industry, really the aim at nightclubs, but it's a, a general rule that's been applied right across the board. Mm. So for for a lot of venues. Uh, around the country uh, and I'm thinking of in particular, let's say, um, country dances, social dances and all types of the dance scene, also several pubs and that's who, you know, may may be serving food during the day and have their clientele in the evening and as soon as a band comes on, if they want to avail of increased capacity numbers uh, or standing room and dancing, then those patrons will need the ticket, a digital ticket. it doesn't take into account as well that the way that some of the sectors run i mean a lot of the sectors are or within the music and entertainment industry you've really got ticketed and non-ticketed sectors and this really affects the non-ticketed sector which is through know, the majority of pubs where you have live music at the weekends or during the week and as I say the dances as well
5: but if you have to take people's details on the way in for contact tracing purposes is this not a bit of a time saver for your sector
8: it is, but the fact that it's just electronic and digital is not giving enough options to people, and that's the problem. Uh, you know, we were told at a meeting on Thursday night that this was something that was being considered. It might come in in a few weeks' time, it would be reviewed. Then on Friday evening, the, the, the guidelines were published, uh, and this was this was put in there as being mandatory. And and now, over the weekend, it, there's been a lot of confusion caused by the department, saying that it doesn't apply to, to bars and pubs and other hospitality settings, but in fact, it actually does... There are, there are two current sets of guidelines. One is the current hospitality guidelines. So, if you have live music in a, in a pub, for example, uh, uh, that's fine to go ahead with no tickets, as long as everyone's seated. Mm. But of course, there are reduced capacity issues with that, and of course, a lot of pubs and, and and premises in the industry will want to avail of the greater capacity that is offered with the event guidelines. So, it poses an awful lot of problems. And again, as I say, it doesn't take into fact, doesn't take into account how the non-ticketed sector works and has worked for years and years.
5: But I suppose, you know, you've been closed. A lot of the venues have been closed for 19 months. You got to go ahead now at the weekend to reopen, which was brilliant. But there's a lot of people who are very conflicted about live entertainment at the minute. You know, they are full of sympathy for the hospitality sector, but they're full of fear for the winter too. And especially as we hear of all these case numbers rising. So <coughs> can like, can you not just get on board with what the government um, is requiring and then we all get behind you? Because, you know, I think when we saw all the queues of people going into nightclubs, obviously there is an appetite there for people and I, I don't think, I don't see how buying a ticket online is going to be a barrier to those people who really want to go out. I mean we have to buy tickets if we want to go to a concert and you know people have been doing that as well so um, is it not something that you can just get on board with and like I know that it's last minute as well but um and it's it's difficult for people to try and put those provisions in place but do you know
8: would it not be just... Well, uh, well if I use the analogy of, 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 of indoor hospitality, for example, that you have restaurants and pubs, and typically you would you would uh, typically book for a restaurant, and that's something that's just within the, the culture um, of people to do. Uh, had indoor hospitality been introduced, where you had to book your time for a pub as well, that would be a very different circumstance. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's what we're feeling at the moment with this, the, the live entertainment, uh, especially for, again, I go back to the dances and I go back to the... The demographic and the age profile of the people who would normally attend dances—they are not usually conducting their life or their business through mobile phones, and they don't really have access to online. Uh, so I think it's it's very discriminatory towards that, um, uh, and and um, yeah, I just it's it's not a, it's not really a workable thing. It, it's, it's something you know if the if the government wanted to actually help, they could have supported more for the industry. Mm. Um, if, if um, the, the big problem here is that yesterday a lot of people in the industry were received their final pup payment. Those are people who would be maybe relying on pub gigs. Uh, if those pub gigs are not viable anymore, they will have no employment over the next you know few months. And that's the issue. If the government wanted to, you know, curb the spread of, of the COVID nineteen, which we all want to do, we all want to see life return to some normality. But there needs to be support if you want to keep the industry closed, Support it. Uh, but don't don't open it and put so many restrictions in that it's actually unviable and non-economic to do business and it will actually uh, pose a greater threat over the next few months to people's livelihoods than what has happened over the past 18 months.
5: I know that the, the ticketing system um, could be introduced tomorrow, um, as early as tomorrow. And obviously, it is going to take people a couple of days to put that in place. So you may have to close for a couple more days. But after more than 500 days, is another few days <coughs> going to make or break a venue?
8: Uh, no, not entirely, but it's also done in the confidence and eroding, co- uh, eroding confidence within the industry about maybe planning a night out or going for a night out. Mm. Uh, and again, a lot of a lot of what happens uh, when people go out and socialise, they socialise because they go out for that bit of freedom. They 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 work hard all week. They've endured you know, 20 months of living with this pandemic and they want to be free, they want to socialise, they want to meet their friends. And now they have to do that in a very disciplined, planned, thought out, way uh, and and it just it removes the spontaneity from socializing and it removes really I think freedom of choice for people as well that they must plan these events Um, you know especially for maybe a younger cohort of people that are going out they must have all these things planned at least an hour in advance.
5: Okay and finally before I let you go Matt McGranahan do you think now that the government should be doing more for the the sector with regards to financial supports?
8: Well, I think they should be offering more supports uh, if they want this type of system to be implemented, uh, then, th- then that needs to happen. Yes, that, uh, you know the several uh, you know, local pubs and, and, and pubs everywhere, even uh, in cities like Cork and, and, and elsewhere, will need uh, infrastructure to put these things in place and that costs money. Mm. They've already, as yeah. I say, you know, uh, promoters within the industry who are the event organizers, who this is going to be their responsibility. They've hemorrhaged enough money over the past 20 months trying to survive. They've reopened, they've invested, they've sold uh, uh, tickets, they've promoted gigs on the basis that it's going to be 100% capacity, and now they find this. And it could just be enough to actually close people down or to cancel gigs. I'm speaking to promoters and the past few days, and just because of the uncertainty, they're now cancelling gigs for the foreseeable. Okay, and that's Matt, the issue.
5: Okay, Matt McCranahan, thank you very much for joining me on the Opinion Line this morning. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan today. PJ will be back with you again tomorrow and Friday. Um, Just in relation to the COVID-19 certs, a listener has been in touch to say, with reference to having the COVID cert, the amount of people who were out at weekend in bars, restaurants and hotels, including weddings, who were not asked for COVID certs was frightening. How can we get rid of this virus when the places we go to don't abide by the rules and keep those of us who got the vaccine safe? Also, Kate has been in touch to say, I was in a Store in Cork City yesterday and there was a person on the door with a clicker. they click when you go in and click when you leave so they know exactly how many people are in the store. Couldn't the venues use that system rather than people having to get tickets and patrons could just show their vaccination cert and ID? Keep your comments coming in to us. 1850 715 083 396 96 96 96. Now there's been a massive increase in the number of people seeking ways of improving their mental health and well-being over the last 18 months in particular and Cork doctor Fiona Barry who specializes in women's health has been telling me about one such technique. Dr Fiona Barry, uh, you have recently uh, achieved or uh, received a diploma in QTT which is quantum thinking technologies. What is that? <laughs>
2: I'm so glad that you were the one who said what it was, because I struggle to say what it is, too. It's much easier to say QTT. So what QTT is really, it's um, a very gentle but extremely powerful talking modality. So um, we all, I suppose, it works on the premise that it's practically impossible to achieve new positive desired outcomes in life while you continue to run the same old disempowering subconscious patterns that most of us run from our past which has got us to probably where we are in our life in, in the first place. Um, so once you can do that, it, it, then also you can empower the person and, and um, you can supply the person as in the The QTT practitioner can supply the person with a toolkit then of techniques and methods and processes, life, I suppose, for dealing with life's challenges as well as them being able to optimise life's opportunities.
5: So would something like QTT benefit somebody who finds themselves in a rut, whether that be in their personal life or in their career?
2: Absolutely. 100%. So it can be used for any sort of behavioral issue. So it'll help with things like, as you said, um, procrastination, overwhelm, you know, maybe you're, it could be about building confidence. It could be that, as you said, you feel like you're stuck in a rut. So you need to um, find your sense of direction. It can also enhance your focus and effectiveness, increase motivation, increase resilience, which I think is amazing. Like it can be used for in so many areas, stress management, self-sabotage, worry, build, you know, I mean, all of these things that I think at some stage in our lives, we all, I suppose, can go through.
5: And do you think that because of the pandemic and people have um, a lot of the time, had a chance to kind of reevaluate where they're going in life. Do you think that we're looking now to um, techniques like QTT to try and bring about a change in our lives that we mightn't have had time for before, or we mightn't have, you know, thought possible before?
2: One hundred percent. I think if there was any any positive to take from the pandemic, it was the fact that it got us to stop, mm. um, and we didn't have the usual outlets that we have that we use to distract ourselves and um, we are just like well the western lifestyle is just has allowed us to master the art of distraction um and numbing and um, we we all do it all the time i mean it it depends on what floats your boat it could be Loads of us numb with things like, you know, Netflix, (laughs) alcohol, um, you know, socializing. Whereas the pandemic really got us to stop and we didn't have those distractions. And all of a sudden, not only were we stuck within our own four walls, but we were stuck in our own head. And I think it was really, really tough for an awful lot of people because a lot of stuff that they had suppressed, um, our emotions that they had depressed maybe, started bubbling to the surface. So um, I think that there is going to be definitely um, a renewed interest in techniques like this, in in modalities like this. People are far more mindful of their health now. I think finally the penny is beginning to drop that um, your health is your responsibility. You know, gone are the days when you walk into um, the doctor's office um, and you kind of... And you hand over that control to somebody else and you say okay can you sort you know sort me out people are realizing that they need to be their own advocate when it comes to their health and when it comes to their life and their well-being um so uh, that's I'm loving that uh, I'm seeing it an awful lot in clinic you know when when women come in to me a lot of the time they've done a lot of research themselves you know uh, are they very much appreciate that I sit down and I take the time that my approach is com- is completely holistic so it doesn't matter what they come in for it could be coming in for fertility It could be coming in for menopause it could be coming in for digestive issues uh, it could be coming in for migraines but It does. No matter what, I will. We go through everything.
5: How much of what happens in our childhood um, affects how we do things then as an adult?
2: It is massive, Fiona. Absolutely massive. For about the first seven years of our lives, we are imprinting basically on the people who are our main caregivers you know, for most people, that's going to be their parents, that's going to be their immediate family, so their parents, their siblings, but particularly their carers, so i.e. their parents, or it could be their grandparents, or it could be their, you know, the childminder if that's the person they're spending the most time with. So how that, how you're cared for as a child has a huge bearing on the kind of beliefs you set up about yourself and the passions you set up about yourself. Um, and, with a lot of my clients, what I would find is, is they're coming in about something that's bothering them now, but the root of it is, in general, back in the past. So and all that's happened is, is they're running that pattern and each experience they have, they're nearly setting themselves up so that each experience where, where you know, it, it embeds that pattern even more.
5: So with QTT, Dr. Fiona Barry, is it similar to counselling?
2: It's, It's quite different. It is obviously a talking modality. Um, But the difference, I guess, would be that with counselling, a lot of the time what you're doing is you're asking somebody to, I suppose, talk through situations that they've had in their lives or maybe traumatic events they've had in their lives. With QTT, what you're doing is you don't necessarily need to talk through those events. What you're doing is you're looking to break the feeling that your subconscious has attached, the meaning that your subconscious has attached to the events. So, for example, I've had a lot of clients coming to me, and um, I'm a firm believer that the the universe sends us. You know, we attract certain clients, and I've been getting a lot of um, clients who, unfortunately, have are survivors of sexual abuse, um, particularly that that, have, that that has happened to them during childhood. And what I'm finding amazing with QTT is I don't need to know any details. I just need to know where the emotion and where the trauma has been held in their body. Okay. And then yeah. we can release on that. Because I find for for a lot, for, for something like that, with the child abuse, I think, and sexual abuse, then our subconscious has no idea it has no concept of time it holds all our memories you know yourself that yourself if you you pick a memory from your childhood, and um, say it's a nice memory of you being on holiday somewhere, and say for argument there's a particular song playing, we all know, we all have those memories. And the minute even now you hear that song, you can be catapulted straight back to, Oh, that was the day we went on a day trip to the beach. And but and you get that feeling in your body. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the same. So unfortunately for for negative events in our body and negative experience in our body it's for us it's exactly the same experience so if you're getting somebody to talk about that event again subconsciously we have no concept of time so therefore it's like being re-traumatized and this is what i love about qtt because you don't actually have to talk about it all all the practitioner needs to know is where are you feeling it in your body And allowing you to release that.
5: So if people want to um, get into it or they want to find out more about it, where can they go for information? If you
2: Google it, there's a lot of QTT practitioners out there now. And that's what I love as well is that, you know, we've all been trained and I suppose trained in the same way. But again, we go back to the fact that we all have our own unique model of the world. So therefore, the way we practice is, is very unique to each individual practitioner.
5: And of course, they can follow you on your Instagram as well, Dr. Fiona Barry. Absolutely. (laughs) All right, listen, thank you so much for joining me on the opinion line. That was very informative. Thanks very much for explaining it all to us.
0: Can we just talk? the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan
4: Call us now 1850
0: 715 996 On Cork's 96FM Now just
5: to bring to your attention there will be a no appointment walk-in COVID vaccination clinic at Cork City Hall for first and second doses for 12 year olds and over this coming Saturday between 1 and 4pm and Sunday between 10am and 2pm 12 to 15 year olds will need a parent or guardian and first timers will need to have their PPS number, photo ID, air code email address and mobile number second timers must wait 21 days from the first dose and need proof of previous dose, vaccination card plus photo ID. And for some good news on this wet Wednesday to celebrate the release of Ed Sheeran's fifth studio album Equals Corks 96 FM is giving away copies of the album and free tickets to see Ed live at Parky Queeve on Friday April 29th. Listen to Corks 96 FM all day this Friday and Saturday to win your way to Ed Sheeran and grab a copy of his new album Equals out this Friday the 29th. It's an Ed Sheeran winning weekend this Friday and Saturday only on Cork's 96FM. Now, as we emerge from the pandemic, many of us may be reassessing our lives and are looking for some positives to come from the trauma brought about by the pandemic. Joy Tendai Kenger is a Zimbabwean national who's been living in Ireland for 20 years and has written a fascinating article that she hopes will inspire hope in others. Joy Tendai, you have written um, an article and um, you have said that we're coming through a global pandemic and for many it's been a period of great sadness, but you say we only have to look at history to know that there can be some positives from a time like this. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, firstly, Fiona, thanks for for having me and having read my article. I hope it did have a a positive impact on on everyone, which was the hope of it. And Mm. it's really written from my own personal views of how looking at different things and my experiences. So just as a starting point, we've all gone, the world has gone through, you know, different from the ice age to world wars, to uh, let's say the droughts in Ethiopia, but people still persevere. You know, the people children are still born, um, people get married, uh, and people leave. So, my sense is that yes, there's been a loss. This is our global disaster that we've ab- we've been able to witness, or our children have been able to witness. If those that went before us were able to pick themselves up, um, even in the dire, the most dire circumstances. Uh, we, we can only look even bringing it back home to Ireland, the, 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 the famine. And we could say that the people that were living in that period would have gone through such trauma, hardship, that they would have said, we give up. Mm. And no one goes back and, and does that. So really I was writing it from the point that no matter, there is always the cycle of life, there's always... A time for happiness and a time of sadness, but we always have to look at the world with hope. And it's something that my grandmother taught me that you, that, you know, there's always hope. Do not feel that if today has been a bad day or if this month is going has been so bad or the year that it's going to end up that way. So that is what I meant that we we mm. we always have the hope of the next cycle of happiness coming through.
5: Do you think when you're talking there about the cycle, do you think that when we are in a period like that, uh, what you mentioned about the various different eras in history and and this current pandemic that we're going through, that we learn things as we're going through something like that and that as a society, we can be better on the other side then?
3: Absolutely. Um, Firstly, you know, the pandemic at the moment has shown us or shown the world the massive inequities and inequalities that exist um, within society. Because sometimes when we are so busy, like we were before the pandemic, going on with our lives, not knowing you know, who our neighbor was, or even mm. having the time to, to talk to people or learn about other cultures and other people through social media, we live in our own bubbles. We don't have an idea. We have our own social bubble, our own cultural bubble that we live in. And we forget that there's other people, and I think you know, really, when I talk about, I don't like talking about abstract things, I want to bring it back to Ireland, which is the country that we are living in, the country that I have called home for the past 20 years, and it is my new home. Um, a lot of people would have had the notion that okay, there is you know the blow ins, there's the migrants, and everything that you know, we are all different compartments and failing to see that if a person does choose to come and live in an Ireland and stays as long as I am like that person is not it's not going anywhere you know because for me for, like for example I've spent half my life here and it it's it's knowing that we are together and really trying to bridge those gaps or those bridges that are are between us so that we can build a wholesome strong nation when when we all come out of this
5: You mentioned in your article that you yourself had gone through your own personal experience of loss and and death and poverty. Would you care to um, elaborate on that a little bit or do you want to go into your own personal story a little bit?
3: So I'll talk about the things that I am comfortable about Mm. talking. So starting from really what has led me to today and having the strength to go back as a mature student and study was the death of my son in 2013 Um, and also my near-death experience where I felt that I was given a second chance in life. And for me to go back and study, I was, you know, it's been honoring my son's life and really hoping that, you know, as my guardian angel, he keeps me strong. And, you know, with the support of my two other children, that they've been there. So that is the loss. And the loss of that is being so far away from my family and realising that, you know, I could have died without my family or my mother next to me. And also just caring and keeping on that, you know, I have, you know, my son's urn that I look at and really not knowing that, is this the final place that I'll be? You know, just to having to know, that am I am I able to bury him in Ireland, and will he be welcome on Irish soil? So those are the things. Um, just in terms of my life history and what has motivated me is my dad died when I, at a very young age, and there's something that happens to you when you, you lose a father at a very young age. Um, it's a loss, you know. It's a it's a big loss, and within the African family, would have been. The major. My mom used to work, but both of them would have given us the same life. But my life changed to the extent that I was going to a very good school. And I ended up at times on the one salary that my mom had that we, she couldn't pay for the school fees and the embarrassment of being called up at assembly and told you have to go home because your fees is not paid. Or not having transport to go to school and you have to walk a couple of kilometers back home or knowing that there is no food at home but you go to school and you put up a brave face uh, with all the children that would have had you know come from wealthy families and knowing that you, the, you know you're playing the long game that it's not a short you whatever you want to achieve is going to happen but you're going to go through this and turning points like that where as as a teenager you know, everyone has fancy clothes and everything and you don't have um those clothes and to the extent that when I was doing my living suit, um I, ha- I I remember that skirt that I couldn't afford we couldn't afford to, to buy me a new uniform that I had to go and get a uniform with a patch on it and that's what I wrote that's what I spent the year wearing um and that that so that is that has been the road. It, that's an incredible
5: story Joy Tendai and you have come through all of that and you are now a lawyer here in Ireland is that right?
3: Yes that was um, that was my dream uh, from the age of six um, like I say to you I knew where I wanted to be but I didn't know how the road was so yeah. it's been an incredible journey um, uh, a dream that was uh, started a, a very very long time ago um, but I knew I'm um, I've I've said to people that I knew that I didn't, I, I knew that I would be, you know, somewhere in the world, but I would fulfill my dreams.
5: And what gave you the motivation to keep going and to be able to achieve that dream?
3: I suppose going back to the fact that when you go through all the things that I've gone through or when you face hardship, you don't want to face it anymore and also that i'm a very um i believe in god i faith in god that is what has pulled me through even when i was in a coma it was my faith in god that really you know the power of prayer that really led let me through and just knowing that there is a brighter day which is something that my 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 grandmother told me that there is a brighter day so that was it and also like i said in my piece music you know they don't make music the same as they used to do i'm very blessed that my parents loved music and they introduced me to music our household was always you know full of music and that is listening to that that i suppose you get more motivation and it's something that is sad that i see in the younger generation that they don't have That kind of music that really builds, because what music is supposed to do is to bring people together or in my case or in other people's cases that it uplifts them. When you have nowhere else to turn, that you can put up a song and that will let you live another day or go through that period and really know that there is something to look forward to.
5: And you also spoke a little bit about um, your Irish connections and Jameson in particular.
3: Um, So, um, I think one thing also that I'd like to say, Fiona, is I could have gone anywhere in the world, you know, when I decided to migrate, but I found that Ireland, um, having connections with um, the Dominican convent nuns and also teachers that were teaching in Ireland and also the history, the colonial history between Zimbabwe and Ireland, that. There, there should be an understanding of what you know, different oppression does to. So that's why I I, um, I uh, came to Ireland. Also, and just the the fascination of having to to celebrate St Patrick's Day in Zimbabwe and knowing what what what's, what it's about <laughs> and having to come here and experience it myself. But um, so the high school that I went to was called Jemison High School. So I suppose it was named after. Uh, one of the Jemisons that came in. And so that's because all the schools at that time, they've now changed some of the schools, but you would have, you know, colonial names to schools. You know, as well, we had Cecil John Rhodes, Jemison, and so, and so forth. So, um, and then only to find out that, you know, Jemison Whiskey was in in Ireland, but the family um, motto for the Jemison family is Sinemetu, which means without fear and that was our school motto. So from the time you started um, first year of secondary school, we actually had a song that we sang in assembly every morning, and that became instilled you know, in you, that you would go without fear. And until this day, whenever I meet someone with, that went to Jemison in our era, you have, they they walk with their heads held up high. They walk without fear and they keep on going.
5: Would that be your message, Joy Tendai, for people as we emerge from this pandemic now? And, you know, you... You were talking about there at the start of the interview, how people had come through different times of trauma and tragedy and came out with a positive outlook on life. Um, Is that what your motto would be to people now as we emerge from the pandemic and try to make people hopeful? Walk without fear.
3: Absolutely. Um, So the message that I have is really in different folds. Firstly, to the young people, you are braver than you think. When we face the pandemic, it's been a catastrophe for your generation, but you're braver than you think and you're loved more than anything in this world. So go forth and achieve your dreams. Do not let this period bring you down. And for for girls and maybe women from minority backgrounds, this is your time to shine. It, It is really the time to shine. I feel that we are so empowered as women because our voices are now being heard and we just need to keep on going because I suppose we have the strength, we have the knowledge, we have the experience and not to take it from men, but also just in the general, as in society, uh, policymakers is that we are coming out of a, a period where Ireland, you know, like you said, walking without fear, we are able to, to become one of the great nations and not for, you know, Be united than, you know, disunited like what we're seeing the rest of the world. And that's my message that let's keep on going, you know, know, standing shoulder to shoulder and holding firm.
5: That's a fantastic message. Thank you so much for joining me on The Opinion Line. Joy Tendai, and best of luck with everything. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt.
5: Until you tried it on. we have read countless reports of people who have adopted dogs and who've bought dogs over the pandemic as company but what's actually involved in the whole process of getting a dog and bringing them back to your house and getting amused to to life with you and you getting life to having a getting used to life with a dog in your house well it's going to be the uh, focus of a new documentary that's being proposed and to join and to join uh, and joining me sorry excuse me on the line is aveen who's researching the initial stages of this documentary. Good morning, Eivine. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now this documentary, is uh, it's the Dog Project, and just tell me how yeah. it's going to actually work.
10: Well, it's in development at the moment with RTE and Venom Films in Dublin, and it's going to work. We're going to hopefully find um, some willing participants, and we're going to document their process the initial stages, hopefully, of them deciding what dog to get, maybe if adoption is the way forward for them, or perhaps they're going to go down the more, I suppose you could say, traditional route of going to a breeder and acquiring a dog that way, and just kind of that decision process. And then we're going to look at the dog actually coming to live with them, and then the weeks after the dog is adopted, the dog acclimatizing to life with their new family and as well like vice versa the family acclimatizing to
5: life with the dog (laughs) because i think like a lot of people discovered um who maybe hadn't had a dog themselves before the pandemic and decided to get a dog as company and they soon (laughs) realized how much work is actually involved in having a dog
10: yeah and i think kind of on the other side of that we want to put give a very uncynical portrayal of the whole process as well, because we understand people still love and connect with their animals every single day. And I think that's at the heart of all adoption stories. Mm. Unfortunately, not all of them work out the way that that we want them to. And we have to be mindful of that as well. And we are, when we enter into this project, we're looking for all kinds of adoption stories or parents, if you will, from around Ireland. And that's why we're doing a call out at the moment to find participants at this stage of development to see if there's anybody who might be interested in getting involved and documenting the lives of their pets, essentially.
5: I suppose, uh, Eveen, it's important to point out as well that you're not just doing this willy-nilly, that you are actually getting advice from Irish Kennel Club and the ISPCA throughout the whole project. So it is responsibly Uh, made.
10: Absolutely, we're in constant conversation with the ISPCA and the DSPCA and of course reaching out to the different rescue centres around Ireland. Now we're mindful as well that the participants that we find may not want to go down that route. And we are accepting of that as well. I think everybody needs to have their own free will in this and they're they're comfortable making their own decision when adopting a pet. The inspiration for the piece really came from Ken Wardrop is the director of the piece um, in development at the moment. And he was really inspired by Seven Up. I'm not sure, some of your listeners might be familiar with it. It was Mm. a, it started in 1964. It was a film series that started in 1964 that charted the lives of Uh, several people in the UK as they grew up through the years and the last installment if you will was in 2012. So I suppose the aim of this project is really to look at how the different dogs start out in life and what kind of families they go to and what kind of backgrounds they have and then the few weeks after that as well and hopefully then fingers crossed um, the project will be recommissioned down the line and we'll be able to revisit the doggies and see where they're at.
5: I think one of the dogs that you're um, hopeful of getting would be an assistance dog for a family.
10: Yeah, so we're definitely going down the service route. We're hoping to um, either get a dog who's entering into service in uh, Autism Ireland. So we've been in talks with Autism Dogs Ireland. We're also looking at uh, people who are looking to adopt dogs into nursing homes, um, which I'm really excited about because I just think that to see, you know, firsthand it's something, but even just to witness it being documented on our screens, you know, that that really special connection that people have with these animals and how we can really help people as well, like both mentally and indeed physically. and I think showing that that for somebody, say, who might be a dementia patient in a facility around Ireland, I think could be a gorgeous story arc to see on our
5: screens. If how many people or families are you looking for?
10: Well, originally we were thinking about nine. Now this could change because at the moment we are in development, so we are just seeing how things are going to pan out over the next few weeks. And also everything has to be very much character based for us. So we are doing the initial reach out for characters at the moment and we need to find the right people essentially to take part. Um, I might just give you a bit of background on Ken, uh, who's the director. He uh, is a documentary maker, has been for a number of years, and he would have made documentaries like His and Hers, Making the Grade, and I'm sure a few of your listeners would be um, familiar with Cocooned, which recently screened on RTE as well.
5: And finally, Avine, if anybody does want to take part in this documentary, where do they go for information or how do they apply?
10: So they can email us on info at venom.ie info at venom.ie or they can call us on 085 1373108 that's 085
5: 1373108 so anybody who wants to have a new dog in their life and doesn't mind having cameras following them around for a
10: couple of days a <laughs> week yeah weeks. and it is we're so mindful of the fact that it's a process, you know, like nobody's going to get used to it straight away, but Ken is a fantastic director and um, we want to make this process as genuine and as, I suppose easy for the participants as possible. Um, We're looking for all kinds of adoption stories, so do do reach out if yours is a little bit unorthodox. We want to hear from you. We want real people and everyday characters.
5: Brilliant, Davine. Thanks so much for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning.
0: Can we just talk? Opinion Line with PJ Coogan Text or WhatsApp now
5: 083 396
0: On courts 96 FM A couple of
5: comments coming in in relation to my conversation with Professor Sam McConkie earlier in the show this morning A listener says To McConkie's thoughts on why our numbers are up I would add this Ireland and UK versus the rest of Europe have a huge need for socialising via drink culture Due to our climate for much of the year this takes place indoors in badly ventilated premises stuffed full of people To top this drink makes you all touchy-feely, an ideal Petri dish for COVID. Somebody else has been in touch to say, hello Fiona, for every Professor McConkie, there is a professor who is anti-vaccine, but they are all banned in the media. This is exactly what Anthony Fauci wanted back in December 2019. Professor McConkie's profession was brought into disrepute with the relentless testing on this deadly virus over the last 20 plus years. Ask one of your experts about this one aspect next time he or she is on. I got the vaccine and I'm leaving it at that. All the best. Ed. Keep your comments coming in to us, 1850 715 996 083 396 96 96. Now, the Edith Wilkins Street Children Foundation have launched an emergency appeal to support their street children's support programmes as COVID-19 continues to wreak havoc, Excuse me, continues to wreak havoc across India. And joining me now is Edith Wilkins. Good morning, Edith.
9: Morning Fiona, how are you? I'm very Thank you very well. much for having us.
5: And, and thanks for joining us on the show. Edith, um, you are based in Cork, but you've been working with um, people over in India for many, many years now. What's the situation like since COVID hit over there?
9: Oh, it is dreadful. It's absolutely dreadful. And... Um, not only, where, where we are at the moment, we're up in Darjeeling, so um, it's 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 up on the borders where the children are trafficked across the border and that, and so we're up the mountains. Mm. So on top of COVID, we have now had major rains, landslides. You know, it's just been a nightmare altogether. It really has been. It's been one thing after the other up there. The same all over. In, it's it's just going through the roof, the, the COVID.
5: Yeah. And your charity needs to raise around thirty thousand euro to keep just to keep children's homes open and safe for the next three months. Is that right?
9: This is it. And we're just making I, you know, people have been wonderful, Fiona. I have to say that people have been wonderful during COVID. During COVID we had we fed and we watered and we gave health packs to over three thousand people in the slums as well as our homes and people really supported us. Mm. But what's after happening is the numbers and what is after happening outside the desolation, everything has been so bad that usually the grants we would get from the Indian government have all gone to COVID. So now we're stuck for money to run the programs for the next three months. And it's you know, it's just a major appeal. We will have to send the kids back and we can't do that. You know, these kids have been rescued from trafficking, from child Mm. prostitution, from, you know, you name it. But um, it's just it's just been horrendous out there, as it has been in any really developing country. Um, and, you know, people who are getting it and they, they haven't a clue. They haven't. They don't know how many people have died out there. The Indian government is saying 400,000 people. Mm. You've got UN agencies that are saying it could be as many as four million people. They don't know. So it has been horrendous out there. And, you know, with no social welfare, none of the other stuff. People mm. are just being so badly affected.
5: And you obviously are working with the children over there. And I think one of your biggest fears as well is that they're going to be out on an education because they just can't go to school at the minute.
9: Well, schools are closed and they haven't been reopened yet out there at all. And the other thing is we have found this, especially in the slums where our kids, you know, we have children living in the slums that come to us every day that are child labourers. And we have our residential children who are rescue children and children bothering from child trafficking and that. Now, what we're discovering is, is, is that the children that we had spent so much time working on with in the slums are child labour children. They are now dropping out and going back to work because their families have not, nobody has anything, you know, they, they can't go to work and they're getting sucked into pimping, into the drug trade. They're working as drug runners and we're, you know, we're scared that they just drop out of school.
5: Um, You know, they're doing schools,
9: Mm -hmm. you're doing schools online and they don't have the facilities to stay online.
5: I was just going to say that to you, like when we were doing the online learning and homeschooling here, I mean, the majority of people had access uh, to some sort of a a device, whether it was a phone or a laptop. Um, But over there, I mean, like, you know, they don't have access to those things. So they're just missing out completely.
9: They are. This is it. No, they do. I mean, they may have, you know, they may well have access, maybe one in 10 of them have access to a phone, but that means about 10 of them trying to get together. Mm. And you know where they're living, is just a one-room shack. So can you imagine all of them and family all in together in this tiny 10 by 10 and trying to learn? And it's just it just hasn't worked. Now, we have been very lucky, I have to say. We have yeah. been very, very lucky. And none of our children, no... Know- my daughter of 30 years, my foster daughter died from COVID, but the rest of our kids in the program outside, they have been, the staff have been remarkable and none of the children are after getting COVID. And Everybody, all it's incredible.
5: Edith, one of the big problems I think as well um, that you're fearful of now and that you're facing into is that a lot of these children are going to become orphans.
9: That's a huge thing that is after happening already out there. Mm. There is a big problem with children becoming orphans. I know one of the sisters in Bangalore was on to a friend of mine, another woman there, Nuala, who works in um, South India with the children, and they have huge increase in their orphanage. And, you know, it's just when children get lost, they've been trafficked. They, you know, there's loads, there's just thousands upon thousands of children by themselves out there.
5: And Edith, and if anyone you know is what? listening here this morning and they want to help with your charity, it is the Edith Wilkins Chil- Street Children Foundation. What can well, they do? Okay. Where do they um, donate or how can they support you?
9: They can support us. It's um, up on our website on Facebook. It's on our website. Um, we're in AIB Bank in Douglas. So anybody, anything, absolutely anything. And that's the one thing I have to say to everybody, every single penny counts and I think this time we are really appealing to the businesses in Cork as well because we have never been so low on our funding Mm. and we're also appealing to local businesses to please support us this time, they have been fantastic, local people have been but it's just for three months we will get back on our feet then
4: Okay
5: brilliant, Edith Wilkins, best of luck with everything that you're doing over there and thanks for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning Welcome back to the final hour of this Wednesday's Opinion Line with Fiona Corcoran sitting in for PJ Coogan this morning. Now, um, Irish Rail have been on Twitter to say that there was a track fault between Mallow and Cork earlier this morning and um, that was de- uh, delaying the departure of the 10.25 Cork to Houston Station, um, but full services now have resumed on all routes to and from Kent Station in Cork and they just want to wish their customers for thanks for their patience and understanding throughout the works and their teams who completed the work the works and I think they were the works that um, were taking place over the weekend and uh, the tracks were, were closed but they have reopened again now so that's good news for any commuters. And speaking of commuters, um, we were speaking to Councillor Derry Canty over in Ballincolig yesterday morning about speeding in um, estates and we got an email from one listener to say, listening to Derry regarding traffic, I'm a resident on Pine Walk where the girls school is located and the behaviour of unruly drivers on this cul-de-sac de sac his belief. This year has been the worst so far. Even the traffic warden was verbally abused. It's just a matter of time before a child is seriously injured. Thank you for that email from a listener with regards to speeding. Um, With regards to the um, international travel and COVID, Kate has been in touch to say, are there any checks now when you return from travel abroad? I know a couple who went abroad to visit family and they're back at work now. Are there forms that people fill out when they return or are there no checks now? If anybody has an answer for Kate on that, they might let us know, 1850 96 96 96. Now, we've heard in the news that um, the HSE are deeply concerned about the growing pressure on ICUs around the country, and um, particularly with the rise in COVID cases. But we know as well that um, we always have overcrowding in hospitals every winter. And um, as part of the winter plan this year, uh, Sinn Féin TD, Donica O'Leary, is questioning why we're not having more uh, step-down community beds here in Cork. Good morning, Donica.
11: Good morning, Fiona.
5: Donica, this is an issue that you have raised with the Minister for Health. I think here in Cork, we're down 20 or 30 community step-down beds since before the pandemic. And uh, what kind of an answer did you get or did you get an answer at all?
11: well no not a huge answer no to be honest i suppose just uh general platitudes to the effect of it was part of a, a lengthy debate but general platitudes about the need to ensure that we have adequate hospital capacity but they didn't do that in the budget i suppose the first thing to see is like it. You know while we can talk about different categories of beds like they all play a role and if there is Mm -hmm. too much pressure on icu uh and if you can release people from icu into acute beds uh, and if you can release people from acute beds into community beds or into from the general hospital ward into community beds that makes a huge difference an awful lot of people who are in our hospitals it is all about beds at the end of the day are uh not well enough to return home but they're not so unwell that they need to be in a hospital uh, so we have lost I believe between 20 and 30 community care beds in the community in the Cork City region uh, over the course of the last two or three years and there's a number of reasons for that things which are about HICWA uh, and inspections and safety standards and infection control and different things like that we're meant to have had at this stage additional beds in St Finbarrs. that hasn't come to pass partially because of COVID partially because of other reasons I really think we need to urgently deal with this and try and find additional capacity whether that involves hiring buildings whether it involves modular buildings but we need to put in place beds in the community so that people can be discharged from hospital and that frees up other beds for people who are affected by COVID but maybe not in ICU or coming down from ICU.
5: But is there a big problem with staffing as well I mean there's no point in getting extra beds into the system if you don't have the staff and we're constantly hearing about staff shortages in the health system?
11: Yeah well look I mean there is a significant issue there and I think some of the issues that need to be resolved to ensure that we deal with recruitment and retention haven't been dealt with like i mean there's the whole issue of like look student nurses now are they've been treated with disrespect throughout the pandemic and now that international travel is opening up i'm sure many of them i believe indeed and getting reports and many of them are now considering whether they might go elsewhere to work because they don't feel adequately respected here you look at the workload uh, that they face and um, indeed with, likewise with the uh, non-consuming consultant hospital doctors they face huge workload so um, a lot of the reasons that they are talking about leaving or not staying in the system are um, are not Yet resolved. Uh, there's also issues around pay quality. So yeah. we need to resolve all those issues. Uh, we do need additional consultants, nurses, healthcare assist- assistance. That law require proper workforce planning. Uh, there's about a thousand eight hundred come through the system each year. Uh, so we need to retain, but we also need to look at recruiting from an out- outside. Last year seven thousand came into the health system, and we're we're talking about six thousand five hundred in total uh, for the Sinn Féin plan in relation to staffing. So uh, I believe that that's possible. It will require work but some of it is about respect some of it is about treating healthcare staff with respect uh, and like I mean I suppose the community bedside the things that doesn't necessarily require large amounts of doctors it does require nurses it requires healthcare assistance and it does require some doctors no doubt uh, but it doesn't require them at the same scale as in the acute hospital setting so if you can provide The infrastructure outside of the hospital, that means that people who are in the hospital, who are well enough to leave the hospital, not well enough to go home, that they can be cared for in the community, taking the pressure off for hospitals. That needs to be the whole point of the strategy this winter. Let's take the pressure off the hospital. And the other thing about that is, of course, home health, Fiona, uh, which is under-resourced and big waiting lists for people who want to come home but need a little bit of support
5: all this it sounds great and like obviously we all need we, we know that we need the extra staff and um, retention is is another massive issue for the HSC right across the board but like where is the money coming for all of this
11: Well, look, I mean, we outlined very clearly in our alternative budget and it's fully costed. Uh, And like, I mean, there's a big contrast with the government and I know that they're concerned now and all the rest of it. But like, I mean, they only added about 19 additional ICU beds. We provided for an additional 34. But beyond that, we provided for 194 specialist and community beds. They didn't provide for any. And that would be in Mm -hmm. mental health, in palliative care, addiction and recovery. um. We allocated 220 million for additional diagnostics and surgical capacity, um, you know, for dealing with issues of children dealing with scoliosis. So, like, I mean, it's very clear in our alternative budget uh how where the money would come from this. Some of that has in relation to savings, some of that has in relation to additional taxation measures, uh including a solidarity tax on the very highest earners. Uh, and it is fully costed Uh, but some of this is about the choices and the priorities that exist and it seems that the community care side of things um, hasn't been focused on and I really think it's a missing piece I know that they're concerned about it in the CUH I know they're concerned about it in the Mercy they have patients that they believe they could discharge to the community if the beds were there but they're not I believe that there is still some time to resolve this on an emergency basis, obviously, because it's already edging into winter. But it is possible to procure uh, additional space and put the staff into it. It is possible uh, to get modular units, even at this late stage. And I would be urging, and I am urging the Minister to act on this because it's a key component. Let's take the pressure off our hospitals uh, to do that. We invest in the community. That's That's a big part of the solution.
5: Will you be raising it again with him?
11: I will yeah the dial is on recess this week um, I raised it last week and I'll be raising it again at the earliest opportunity uh, to do so uh, and I'll be writing to him as well uh, I am in communication with the, the hospital management here uh, locally uh, and indeed with HSE generally and uh, look I, I but while I don't agree with everything every action that's happening in terms of the HSE and the hospitals locally I know that they're doing their best with limited resources and I know that they need additional support and indeed the nurses and doctors who are on the front line dealing with these pressures. They want to see bed capacity increase, not just in the hospital, but in the community. So that's like, you know, this could be the difference between the huge trolley count and a lesser trolley count. And I think that needs to be everyone's objective. It's better for dignity. It's better for safety. And it's better from a COVID point of view.
5: And Donica, what are your constituents saying to you on the ground here? Are they concerned about getting sick this winter? Because, you know, I know we hear every year of uh, overcrowding in hospitals and people on trolleys. And now we're hearing about um, a surge in COVID cases and, and an increase in the amount of people with COVID going into hospitals. So are people genuinely afraid of getting sick?
11: yeah of course um like i mean i think the winter is always a worrying period particularly for people who are who are vulnerable and you have all the issues in relation to to the flu in any year and the impact that has that has so look i take the opportunity to urge people not only to get the covid vaccine if you haven't got it but if you can uh, and if you can access it to get the flu vaccine these are all things that can take the pressure off the hospital system as well people are worried yes no doubt about it Uh, and indeed people are worried for their relatives um now look i mean i think we need to like i mean the key here is in relation to investment i don't think the budget invested enough uh, in our hospital system i don't think it provided enough additional beds especially uh, for this coming winter but there is still time to resolve some of those issues i don't know why the government was so unambitious uh, like I mean whatever about last winter uh, this winter now they've had 20 months of a pandemic more really and they should be aware of what's needed uh, but they don't seem to have made the investment that's necessary uh, and there isn't enough additional beds being put in place
5: the um elect- the new elective hospital for Cork or the proposed elective hospital for Cork I think that's being discussed this week as well is it I mean we still don't have a date yet or a location for where that's going to be
11: Yeah, no, look, I mean, I think uh, I I believe that is being discussed. I believe no final solution is being arrived at. Like, I mean, look, I uh, like I mean, I would be very inclined to listen carefully to the the clinical point of view as to what makes the most sense. Uh, But I am conscious of the fact that, you know, there are probably there is certainly a an inadequate provision of supports and medical services for people in the north side of the city and I would be conscious of that and I think that needs to be taken into account in the location of a hospital but um, ultimately I suppose we need to ensure that the whole city and county is well catered for and that there's equality there across all communities but I suppose the clinical point of view will be important as well in terms of um, you know how patients can be transport, transferred and transported and access of clinicians between hospitals and so on. So, look, I mean, I keep an open mind in relation to it, but I am conscious of the fact that there is inequalities in where healthcare is located in our city and county.
5: Okay. Thank you for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. That's Dunicore, Lira Sinn Féin TD. What do you think? Are you afraid to get sick this winter? Let us know. 1850 715 996 or
0: 0833969696 Can we just talk? Opinion line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now 083 396 on Courts 96 FM.
4: Now as part of
5: Irish Music Month this October in association with Hot Press Cork's 96 FM is committed to supporting and discovering new Irish music the final of the Cork's 96 FM local hero talent search has taken place and singer-songwriter Fintan McCahey from West Cork was crowned the winner with his original songs Lost Balloons and Platinum Fintan will now go on to compete against acts from all over Ireland where the overall winner will receive €5,000 in cash €5,000 worth of music equipment Their single released on the Rubyworks record label guaranteed radio play on 25 radio stations in Ireland and we wish him all the very best in the final Irish Music Month on Cork's 96FM is supported by the BAI Sound and Vision Fund and XL Retail, offering a great deal more at your local store. And with regards to uh, my conversation with uh, Donico O'Leary, a caller got in touch to say, but wasn't Donico O'Leary campaigning for access to CUMH when medical people thought it unwise? He was indeed, his wife was in having a baby there recently Um, Another person with regards to contact tracing says, Hi Fiona, they keep saying they need details in pubs and clubs for contact tracing. Could you investigate whether there actually is any contact tracing from clubs? I.e. will you be contacted if a person who is in a club at the same time as you test positive? Because I don't think that's happening. Thanks Susan. And if anyone out there in the hospitality sector is um, aware of that or wants to answer Susan's question on that, they can get in touch with us here on the opinion line 1857159. 96 or 0833969696. Now um yesterday the minister for environment Eamon Ryan um said that he welcomed the proposed carbon budgets from the climate change advisory council and uh, they are, um, they're, they're planning on implementing three carbon budgets, each covering five years, that set out limits on emissions from specific sectors. And one person who um, has a, a proposal for how we can reduce our carbon emissions is James O'Donovan, who's the co editor of Vegan Sustainability magazine, and he's a member of the Cork Environmental Forum. Good morning, James.
1: Good morning Fiona
5: James you think we need to look at how um, agriculture is 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 carried out here in this country
1: Well, agriculture produces thirty seven percent of our emissions and about ninety percent of what we produce is for export so um a lot of farmers in Ireland as well um, are not making they're making very little money from um, from their agriculture. So 70% of the farms in Ireland are beef or sheep farmers. And for example, every year Chagas produces this study called the National Farm Study, which looks into farmer income. And those farmers, they're making about 8,000 euros a year, but that's because they get a subsidy of about um, 13,000. So running their business, they actually lose. 5,000 euros in a year so what a lot of people are proposing now is they're proposing that farmers if farmers could keep their subsidy and um, stop the ruminant production for export and allow their farms go back to restore native Irish woodlands, Irish wetlands, Irish grasslands and um, that that would be very beneficial for meeting our carbon climate goals.
5: I suppose like the dairy uh, sector here in Ireland um it, it, it's massive and it's not just the the farmers it's it's it, it's widespread it like you know it's the local butcher it's the the meat producing pro- pl- the meat processing plants the, the cheese production plants you know there's there's a, it, it's it's a okay the farmers themselves might not be making a huge amount of money but it's a a massive industry here in Ireland
1: so that is that is, the 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 animal ag- agriculture sector is a massive industry in Ireland. It's our biggest indigenous industry. Um, now the dairy sector has eighteen thousand farms, um, and obviously they have contractors that they pay and so forth. And there is also other people employed in the sector. Um, so in right now also you've got. In Ireland, you've got lots of other different kinds of food producers. So you've got mushroom producers, you've got horticulture producers, but those sectors are much smaller, but they don't produce the high rates of emissions. For example, Flavins, who produce, everybody knows Flavins for our oats, mm. they're now also making oat milk. Um, so, uh, so so all of these um, possibilities are there for generating more income in these other sectors.
5: You yourself are vegan, but I don't think you're calling on us all to become vegans, but you would like to see people in general across the country reduce the amount of meat that they're eating.
1: Yeah, so, so ethical veganism is, um, you know, it's, it's a belief system that based on the understanding that other animals are sentient and we shouldn't hurt or harm them. Um, but of course, not everybody, not everybody is going to adopt that belief. So if people if if people increase their fruit and vegetable consumption, um, it's going to improve their diets, and also it's 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 very healthy way. Like there's there's a there's a book called the Blue Zones, and this was on Operation Transformation, and that looks at five regions around the world where people are the longest lived. So Okinawa is a region in Japan where women have the. very very low rates of dementia. So, and in all of these five regions, none of the five regions are 100% vegan, but all of them have are 90-95% plant-based diets. So, lots of fruits and lots of vegetables at the centre, um, at the centre of their uh, diets.
5: Yeah, I think um, it's going to be hard to change people's attitudes towards what they eat here in Ireland because, you know, as a nation, I think we, we really love our our meat, don't we? Um,
1: like, a lot of the change is coming from young people, that's true. Um, so young people are changing for different reasons. So people people become... Uh, You know, people are wanting to live healthier, you know, Mm -hmm. people are uh, making those choices and if you look at the World Health Organization recommendations for a healthy adult, for example, then there's no, um, you know, there's no meat recommended except for small quantities of oily fish. Um, But you can get your uh, omega-3s also through flax seeds, which is readily grown in Ireland. And there was a large flax industry in Ireland before. Mm. And there was a strong linen industry in Ireland before. Ireland also had a large sugar industry before. um, And and also hemp, you know, there's a lot of calls. There was uh, on the Irish Farmers Journal. They said that the hemp industry could generate 80,000 jobs Mm. in Ireland. So there's loads of options for farmers you know, like one of the things people don't realize is for beef farmers, the average age of beef farmers is 62. And it's, there's also an issue which needs to be solved by government in that it's very hard for farmers to to get access to a state pension. Even though they've been on very, very low income for years, because they have the assets of the land, they don't qualify for a state pension. So that's, that is another problem um, which needs to be resolved. Brilliant.
5: James O'Donovan, co-editor of Vegan Sustainability Magazine. Thank you so much for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. Well, what about you listeners? Would you be prepared to give up your steak and your burgers to follow um, a more uh, vegetable-based diet for the better uh, environment? Let us know what you think. 1850 715 or 833 96, 96, 96 Kate has been in touch to say the Greeks and Italians are very healthy. They stay away from butter and use olive oil. They eat well and have a bit of everything. They live very healthy lives Lives. the old people go dancing every night. Well, That's great to know, Okay, Thank you very much for that. Uh, like I was just uh, saying here, I'm not sure. I like the idea of being able to reduce the amount of meat that I eat but I think as well, and I don't know if any other uh, families notice this, but when you've got kids, it's so much easier to make, especially if you're doing batch cooking just to make something with mince meat or stew or something like that and I'm not sure if my kids would really appreciate a plate full of vegetables but we can try if it's going to uh, help reduce carbon emissions. Um, anybody else who has any ideas on that, let us know 1850 715 996 96 96 96. And Pat has also been in touch to say, I would like to know if the passport office in Cork is going to open soon. I sent my passport application via Swift Post on August 23rd and I've got nothing back. It's not acceptable. I want to know if the staff there are being paid to do nothing. Well, I don't think they're doing nothing, Pat. I think they are working from home. But if anybody has any information on the passport office opening in Cork, they might also let us know on eighteen fifty seven 715 five nine nine six or zero eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six. Oh and I believe um yes that they are working from home still. Um, so yesterday the um, Live at the Marquee announced another act for next year and it was River Dance and part of the River Dance crew is Cork Irish dancer John Lonergan. Good morning John.
12: Good morning how are you
5: I'm very well you must have been delighted to hear that river dance is going back on the road after being off for such a long time
12: Oh 100% especially back to cork where obviously we I'm from it's been um, it's hard to believe it's been 6 years since it was here last so we're all very very excited
5: Is it 6 years
12: <laughs> Yeah 2015 was the last time it was crazy yeah
5: and how hard has it been for people like yourselves who've been involved in, you know, stage productions like that, having nothing to do over the last? Well, I know that you're a dance teacher as well, but not having a a production yeah. to be part of, how hard has that been?
12: Um, it, it, it is. It was really difficult, to be fair, because you know, obviously, when you know you have a date in sight and you're trying to prepare to go to go away on tour, or. You know as as a dance teacher for my students to compete in competitions it's it's always great to have an end goal because it's kind of you know you're it's something to strive for so i think obviously with the pandemic and it being so unknown as to when it would end or when it was going to be finished or when things will come back it was hard to kind of keep that motivation up all the time mm. and obviously then with dance studios being closed things like that having to do it from home that like it is great to be able to do it at home but you know yourself is still not the same as being with all the castmates and being with all all your friends and family. You know, so um, it was difficult to keep the motivation up, all right?
5: Yeah, I can imagine. And just with regards to having your your studios back back open now and your classes back, like, is there restrictions around that, or is it all open now again?
12: No, it's not fully open. I mean, we're obviously able to have classes, but it it depends on vaccination vaccinations within certain groups, and if right. if there's mixed vaccination status, they have to be in pods of six and social distancing and stuff like that. So, it's still quite a lot to to manage as a dance teacher, you know, that kind of a way. So, um. Just obviously to make sure that, that that safety is number one and that we're all doing the best we possibly can, you know.
5: And um, you know, I I was chatting to you yesterday about this, and you mm-hmm. know, I think Irish dancing has always been very popular with uh, girls, but we're seeing a lot more boys taking part in it now, aren't we?
12: Yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's great. Even the the class that I would have started just this year when we were allowed back. Um, I actually have five boys in the class that I have now, which is which is fantastic. I mean, you know, previous years you might you might get one. You know, mm. so the fact that there's actually five in, in, in this year is, it's brilliant. And, and you know, especially as being a male dancing teacher and a male dancer, it's lovely to see that filtering through now as well, that, that the, the stigma of, oh, well, you know, boys don't dance or whatever, that seems to be kind of disappearing, which is very, very welcomed, you know.
5: And why is that? Why do you think there's an increased interest in boys joining um, dance schools like that?
12: You know what? I think social media has a massive part to do with it. I mean... Um, there's people on TikTok and Instagram, etc. you mm. know, and uh, and primarily boy groups that um, I think younger kids are able to look at going, oh, God, this is actually really cool. It's not just, you know, as I was saying to you yesterday, it's not just diddly eye one, two, three, you know, that kind of way anymore. It is very much a cool thing to do now. Mm. So I think social media really has kind of, you know, boosted that male presence in Irish dancing as well to make it just that bit more I suppose normal not that it never was but you know it's, it seemed to be a lot more normal now that boys dance and it is normal you know but it's just I suppose year, years ago it was just seemed to be a bit different if you were a male dancer in any kind of art form of dance you know not just Irish dancing by itself
5: Because yeah. I suppose the amount of training and, and practice that goes into it I mean it's the same as any other sport isn't it?
12: Oh 100% I always say it's, it's more of a sport now than an art form um, and the dancers that I train in my class and I know castmates alongside me Revelance, you know we train it's our lives. it, it is our livelihood now and we train to be the best dancers we possibly can be. So you know that be be it that in the in the dance studio, in the gym, your nutrition, sleep, hydration, you know it is a full-on. Mm. a full on sport now so you know it, It's I, I just wish people could see that because a, a, a lot of people just think it's you know the one two threes and the little Cayleys you do around the place but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is it, it is just crazy now you know
5: So if any parents are listening to this this morning and um, you know they'd like their, their child male or female to, to get involved in Irish dancing what kind of advice would you give to them?
12: Go for it 100% go for it because I think it's like anything you have to try it to find out yeah. what it's all about and I think for visually, if, if you're looking at things on on social media, yes, OK, everybody on social media is able to do that now because they've had 15, 20 years of training. But it's the it's the little nitty gritties that, re- that are really, really important. And, you know, yes, you do start with your one, two, threes. But like anything, you have to be a beginner to become a champion. You know what I mean? So um, and obviously seeing shows like Riverdance as well, that's the pinnacle. That's what people work for. their whole lives that's what I worked for for my whole life you know what I mean I went through all competitions three years and that was always the ultimate goal was to be in Riverdance so I think even seeing shows like Riverdance really puts it into perspective of yes okay you do start you know young and doing your one to threes but it it obviously is a journey and it ends somewhere too you know
5: and it is such an impressive show I saw it many many years ago in the INEC in Killarney Mm -hmm. and it was just mind blowing and um, will you be able to go on tour with them now or like are you committed then to your school here in Cork
12: so I'm committed full time to the school but typically if, if the date suited I would be able to go away on tour. Um, say in the summer months now if it was in the Gaius Theatre or obviously the Marquis um, come June, all things that like that would would fit into my schedule that way in relation to the school. Yeah. Um. So I'd be the first. I'd be the first person dropping stuff off to go <laughs> to go to to go back on tour events. Because look, it is it is one of those things. It's it's such a family, and that was mentioned yesterday in the the press briefing we had. It is such a family, and you know when you're not with that family, as we call it, it mm. it, it, it is difficult. You know, especially seeing all the. The pictures and videos and all that going up on social media, and they're kind of like, oh God, I wish I was there. You know, that kind of a way. So, will they let um, you on stage at the Marquee, no, 100%. though? <laughs> Say that again.
5: Will they let you on stage at the Marquee? I'd
12: like to hope so. <laughs> I'd love to be in front of that home crowd again because the last time it was just it was mind-blowing and to this day people always speak about how how amazing the marquee was the last time mm. and that's not me just saying that it, like they genuinely actually do say it and I suppose for me being from Cork as well it just makes it that much better you know
5: Brilliant Okay listen John Lonergan thank you so much for joining us and hopefully we'll see you on the stage of the marquee next year
0: Can we just opinion line with pj coogan
4: call us now 1850 715 996
0: on courts 96 fm
5: a few comments coming in about the green diet. Dee says, maybe if a chef cooked for me daily, it's not easy when the rest of the household are not eager to adapt to a healthier lifestyle. You would think they were being starved. Mind you, I do love a sneaky burger. I'm with you all the way on that one, Dee. Um, we have been uh, contacted as well by an organisation or a group who says, hey, Cork's 96 FM, if people want to take real steps to protect nature but aren't ready to give up their Denny's, we've just launched hashtag Watch, a free Cork Citizen science project Project for well-being and nature, older adults in Cork can take real steps to protect our environment and boost their health and well-being. They can tweet at CNature Watch or email W Stapleton at ucc.ie to get involved cameras and more provided for the project. And just with regards to bouncers I know that bouncers at nightclubs get an awful hard time sometimes but we've had a really nice message here from somebody who says can I add something positive regarding the bank holiday weekend and bouncers. Our dad fell outside River Lane Bar on Blarney Street on Sunday night. The lovely bouncer Joe was so helpful. Stayed with us until we got dad sorted. Thank goodness he's fine but I have to say Joe was very helpful. Minded him with, minded him with us until the ambulance came. Very nice man. Thank you, Joe, from the O'Leary family. Well, that's a lovely message from Joe. Well done to Joe, and thanks very much to the O'Leary family for getting in touch. And hopefully, your dad is uh, making a good recovery. Now, I did mention at the start of the show that. If any parent is at home wondering what to do with the children over the midterm, particularly on a day like this when you can't really get outside, um, then maybe you would consider drawing pictures. And to help us with that is the wonderful Will Sliney. Good morning, Will. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Will your um, TV show Storytellers is on this week? Just tell for people who, par- who for p- parents who don't know what it is, what exactly is it?
13: Sure, it's a, it's a how to draw show in some way in the kind of classic way of just an art presenter teaching kids how to draw. But also it's a bit more than that. It teaches them how to tell stories and to create stories. And the drawings that we create start to come to life and they're all voiced by an incredible Irish cast. And it ends up kind of the story takes over the show as we go on and on over the weeks with it.
5: And where did the idea come from?
13: It kind of came from just like how I would really, really want to do a how to draw show. Like I was brought in at the start of the pandemic into Homeschool Hub, for any of you that remember yeah. that. They kind of brought me in as the the art teacher. And very quickly, it very it went from, you know, oh, what could I do if I had my own show? Like what ideas would I come up with? And then it was a case of literally coming up with an idea that I think would keep kids engaged Uh, not just with drawing, but just showing them the ability that they can do with drawing and with telling stories.
5: You mentioned ability there. I mean, like, is it a case that you have to have a certain amount of talent to be able to draw or has anybody got the ability to draw?
13: No, I, I really think that it's it's all about practice. It's one of the things that I always say. It's it's not a it's not a talent, it's a skill. And and what I mean by that is that the more you draw, the better you get. And it's one of the things that I'll always see, like if somebody comes up to me with their drawings or with a portfolio, if they want to actually go further with it, and then I'll meet that same person a couple of years later, you can really tell the people that have put in the time with drawing and, you know, maybe if you wanted to be an Olympic swimmer, you might need to have hands that like span six feet or something (laughs) like that. Yeah, as long as you can pick up a pencil and practice, it's about the time that you put in. And that's my favorite thing about it. You know, it's it's something that everybody can do if they put in the work.
5: And I mean, like it's particularly with children when they draw something and they come up to you with it and they're so proud of it. And like, even if you don't really recognize what it is, it's just (laughs) to see their little faces and, you know, they're so proud of their work. It's amazing
13: yeah absolutely and then like one of the things i find then is that they can very quickly get frustrated as they want to improve or they might think that somebody in their class is better than them at drawing so a lot of kids will kind of give up or they might not know that there's careers out there to do it and it's one of the important things that i always want to get across like i'm from ballycotton and i'm here working on star wars and marvel you know you can do this stuff from anywhere uh and it doesn't matter who you are or where you're based or anything like that as long as you can get access to a pencil and paper then you're on the right track.
5: Just tell us a little bit about how you made that transition from Ballycotton to working with Marvel. Like, what are you doing with Marvel at the minute?
13: Uh, Right now, uh, I'm working on the new... uh, It's Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, it's called. It was just announced. It's basically... Uh, one of the last books I did was Galaxy's Edge, which is their new big theme park that they have in some of the Disney Worlds and Disneylands, and this one now is the new spaceship that you can go off and stay in for a few nights, so we're telling the whole story of that in a in a big massive comic book that spans all the stories of Star Wars, so it's really good fun to be mixing it up with things like storytellers and then I'm back now here drawing Jedis and spaceships and things like that then as well.
5: Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
13: Yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, like I like I love doing this job. I've been working at Marvel for about nine years now as yeah. well, uh, and and I think with every artist, then it kind of comes to the point that you want to kind of pass on those skills a little bit, and that's I'm certainly getting to do that with storytellers.
5: And you mentioned there at the start of the chat that um, you'd had, um, you know, during the first lo- lockdown that you were drawing and we saw so many different people posting their pictures on on social mm-hmm. media that they had followed your, your instructions and they had drawn some amazing uh, pieces. And were you surprised by how, how much it took off?
13: Yeah, oh, absolutely. Like I was I was expecting like maybe I might get 100 or so drawings or something just to kind of give a few kids something to do. But I was literally getting thousands and thousands of drawings every day, like the first mm. day it was 2,000 Spider-Man drawings. The second day, it was 3,000 Star Wars drawings. And this yes. went on for, some people were sending in drawings every day for an entire year, you know, wow. um, which was amazing. And it, I think I think what happened during the lockdown is that people kind of remembered that kids like to draw because hmm. um, they couldn't go outside. And all of a sudden, the the old pencils and papers all kind of came out and pe- and some kids really got into it again. And I think that combined now with the fact that kids in Ireland understand that you can do it as a career. I mean, there's more there's more animators per capita in Ireland than there are anywhere else in the world. There's such a huge animation industry as well as illustration and comics and things like that as well. So there's what really advice no better would you give,
5: Will, to people who are interested in following something like that and interested in a career in drawing and, and uh, cartoon? yeah
13: just stay drawing. First of all, like at the like, if you're young, just as long as you're drawing and having fun and enjoying it, that's the most important thing. And then for me, like I went to college out in CIT and very quickly, I kind of learned that I really wanted to do this as a career. So like it was like after you've, your are leaving, start done. And when you're kind of going towards the college times is when I really started to turn and focus my life really towards getting better at drawing and putting together portfolios. And, and the best thing about drawing is that like p- prospective employers can see whether they like your stuff very, very quickly. It can be a little bit harder if you wanna be a writer, if someone has to like sit down and read your stories, but with drawing, like they can see your examples straight away and people end up getting hired much quicker than they think.
5: Was it always cartoon characters for you?
13: I I like to draw everything like I like to draw football players. I like to draw video game characters. I like to draw anything that I watched on TV. Really, Um, just anything that inspired me.
5: Fantastic. And where, like, is there art in the family?
13: Uh, not really. <laughs> Actually, it was just something it was, it was all, it was always encouraged. Um, like it, like there was certainly like my, my parents and my aunts and uncles, like the things that they knew to get me for Christmas was make sure I had like plenty of pencils and papers and coloring markers and things like that. And they always came through at me with stuff like that, just to make sure I had that stuff. And it really, like, it's not something that you need to you know, learn from someone. It's just all about the time that you spend drawing. And if you enjoy drawing, then that's not a really hard thing to do. Just as long as you know that you can turn into it at the very, at the very least, it's a brilliant hobby. You know,
5: Mm. I know like a lot of us can uh, doodle when we're, you know, just sitting at our desk or if we're just sitting at home or whatever, (laughs) like would you have always been interested in that? Or like would your doodles have actually been been like a, a character, not just like squiggles?
13: It depends. Yeah, it depends what I was really interested in. Like, like exactly that. Like, it, you should have seen my my homework diaries in school, like they were full of whatever, drawings of whatever I was interested in back at the time. And I've had apologies from teachers that asked me to stop drawing in school ever since then, like not realizing I was on the, the career path that I was in. Um It just... It's just, you know, it, it's, it was like I was into everything else as well. I was into music and sport and the whole lot. But, you know, there's plenty of times when you're sitting down and instead of just watching a TV show, just like you said, I'd be doodling along. And afterwards, if there was something that I really liked, I'd just learn how to draw it.
5: So to go from doodles to drawing Spider-Man, like that's just such, so amazing. What was it like for you to be able to draw that for Marvel? Because It's such oh, an was, iconic he... person like hero, superhero,
13: isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's just <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like, I, and I thought it would have taken me a lot longer to get a Spider Man job inside it than I did, you know. It was like it felt like if you see that X Factor moment when they hit the golden buzzer, that, <laughs> like for and it, it, it's almost like I'd been on that stage trying for years because, of course, you don't like walk straight into the job working on Spider Man, you know, like I had been you know, practicing for many, many years. And I've been working my way through the industry, working on different kinds of books, you know, like I, I would have started with local comics here in Ireland. I got a job with a UK educational publisher, drawing comics. And then I kind of broke into the American comic book scene and kept on climbing that ladder. And the, the great thing about it was, is when you're actually doing it doing it as a job then as well, then you're practicing All of the time for your actual job as well as your stuff starts to improve more and more and i always had that goal of getting to draw things like spider-man and star wars and thankfully i reached it
5: fantastic and will storytellers it is on rte um is it Mm -hmm. on all of this week or is it just every monday
13: no, it's on, it's on every day for four weeks. We have oh, 20 it? episodes. So yeah, it's huge. Like, so for, for the midterm, it's on every day at, at 12.05. So everyone, you need to turn off your radios now in a few <laughs> minutes and turn on the telly. <laughs> um, but, uh, but so then when the kids are back in school, it'll be on at the four o'clock on RT2. So it switches. to, to it waits until they're finished school uh, and it it keeps on running for, for those these four weeks and we've actually now that it's lashing rain and stuff we've stuck up all of the episodes on the player because it's one of the things that the kids are really really into it like they'll just consume it and binge it and really want to learn all of the drawings so they're all available and i've also made over at my own like facebook and twitter and instagram we've put up a, a pdf of 64 pages of like drawing tutorials and coloring pages and stuff like that if people want to print them out and give to their kids as well just just making sure that they have enough stuff to keep them busy
5: Fantastic. And I did see pictures on social media yesterday of lovely artwork that children were drawing after watching your yeah. show yesterday. So it's amazing. Listen, oh, there's
13: nothing better. <laughs>
5: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much and best of luck with everything. Thanks for joining us on the opinion line this morning. That's it. Thank you for listening to me over the last two days. PJ will be back tomorrow on the airwaves at nine o'clock. Thank you very much to the team today Fergal Barry, Murray Tuig and Wayne Hilton. Bye for now.
0: Planning for your next trip?